on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest, Michael Rice. All right, in Chalk Talk, Novak Djokovic won this year's men's Wimbledon finals, giving him a total of 20 Grand Slam titles, tying both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal in big wins. Now, each of these players approaches their game in unique ways, so we take a look at three baritones who are tied in greatness, but bring very different qualities to their game. Plus two-minute drill, the Black Opera Alliance hands out a red card to Tulsa Opera, and we hand one out to Opera Australia. Dallas Opera Network listeners, don't forget, you're just getting a taste of the show right now. I want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Oliver Camacho. I'm still recovering from the loss of Matteo Berrettini, a gorgeous Italian player. Gorgeous with the if you want to talk about thigh guy summer, he was thigh guy summer in 2019. So he's the original <laughs> thigh guy. And those of you who saw the US Open in 2019, you know what I'm talking about. See through tennis. They're all, they're all nodding to themselves right now. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Cummings, the beard gets bigger. Yeah, you know, we're we're bearing down into summer, so why not get even more hair? That's what I say. Every year. No, just this year, really. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, great to see you again. Likewise, it's good to see you too. Uh, my my condolences to you on uh, on your heartbreaking loss yesterday. Mm. I'm utterly heartbroken. I cannot tell you what yesterday was like, other than that um, it always comes down to penalties, and Italy was by far the better team. Michael Rice in the house as well. Great to yes, have sir. you here. Thank what's, you very much, George. What's going on with, with you, sir? Uh, I'm out here in California, in Long Beach, um, living a life post, no, not post-pandemic, but uh, no, everything's fine. Still doing the podcast opera now with Oliver every now and then, so things are good. Fantastic. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Absolutely. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Novak Djokovic came back to beat Matteo Berrettini in four sets in the Wimbledon men's final. The Joker is now tied with both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal with 20 Grand Slam wins. That's matches at Wimbledon and the Australian, French, and U.S. Opens, if you're counting. We take a look at three baritones who are each great, but in very different approaches to their craft of opera. Oliver, you had described this as an all-court player, a jock, and a stylist. I mean, that's not entirely fair, but... um... You know, I was thinking oh, about... Oh, who said you were fair? Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then why did you say it? <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, it was inevitable that Djokovic was going to win. I mean, he's winning everything these days. He's almost impossible to beat. And he probably will surpass Federer and uh, Nadal in Grand Slam titles when it's all said and done uh, very easily, even this year. And he even has a chance of getting the golden Grand Slam because he could win the Olympics and the U.S. Open. And that has never been done before by a man. So um, I think Serena Williams did it. I'm not sure. So um, we are thinking today about baritones. We rarely talk about baritones. And because we are talking about baritones, we needed an alpha male on the show. And since Weston is not here, 
noted alpha, alpha male Weston Williams. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> notorious, notorious. I alpha. thought I'd bring on my co-host from Opera Now. Oh, Christ, that's alpha male. <laughs> <laughs> and so who is Novak Djokovic most like in the pantheon of great American or great baritones of the second half of the 20th century? Uh, the first half of the 21st century haven't been established yet. Who are the great ones? But we definitely have some great baritones from the, the first second tenth. Half. Of the century. <laughs> yeah. Um, who are the people that are most like Nadal, that are most like Federer, and are most like Djokovic? So I'm going to go ahead and posit that um, Rafael Nadal is a specialist on clay court. And he's beautiful on clay courts. He does everything well, but clay courts are his home. Much the same way... Piero Capuccilli is the Verdi baritone of his generation. And when you think about Verdi baritones, you want the voice to be warm and beautiful. You want it to have good line and you want the diction to be clear, the Italian diction to be clear. And you also want to have that thrust that is, that's necessary in those big moments in Verdi operas, like when Amanazro curses his daughter or when, um, and it's uh, Renato in Ball and Mascara sings 82 or um, in Cortigiani, for example, and just go to your YouTubes or your uh, Spotify's and listen to um, Piero Capuccilli sing those moments in those operas. I mean, the tone is always so beautiful. Uh, he sang those roles over his entire life and he got better at them the older he got. I mean, he took care of his voice so well. And you think something like Nadal, like he's there's no way he can keep it up, but he continues to win the French Open every year, just the way, uh, except Djokovic won it this year. Djokovic is on you. Easy come, easy go. <laughs> just the way Capuccilli was able to sing, you know, those great Verity roles all throughout his career and just made them more and more beautiful the older he got. So we're going to do something really fun here. We're going to hear all three of our singers sing the same clip, but I will go ahead and pass over to Ashley to see who she thinks is closest to, uh, well, to Djokovic, the, the all-court guy. Yeah, uh, you know, the the all-court player in terms of the baritones that we're talking about. In uh, I should say all-surface player. That's what I meant to say. That's it. All-surface player. <laughs> it's, it's more in PC. Terms- <laughs> In terms of the baritones of the last uh, half of the 20th century, mine is technically a little bit of a gimme because his career got started right before the second half of the 20th century began, but we're going to go ahead and roll with it. Uh, is somebody who's kind of an all-skate when it comes to music, and that is Robert Merrill. He was also one of the Mets' uh, enduring and leading Verdi baritones, but he spread himself out a lot. He did not restrict himself to that part of the repertoire. He made his home at the Met. He did sing a little bit in Europe and a little bit in South America, but he really focused on once he got on the roster of the Met, that's kind of where he stayed. It gave him a chance, though, to branch out and do some things that 
might have possibly brought him a little more commercial success. So before he was at the Met, he was doing things with the NBC Symphony Orchestra. He was singing bar mitzvahs and weddings and the borscht belt. Once he got on the roster at the Met, he decided to take a little bit of time away to try to do some film and some nightclub and some TV arenas. It got him into a really famous falling out with uh, with the Mets general manager, Rudolph Bing. And after he did some disastrous films, which we can talk about or not, uh, he decided to come back and really take his place as one of the leading baritones on on the Mets roster. Uh, so, you know, he was very well known for his recordings. He did that 56 Boehm with Sir Thomas Beecham that everybody really likes. Um, his timing lined up exactly with when stereo recording came to be. So he, in addition to the Met, he's really got his foot in in terms of recording. But he was not afraid to be on television cameras. He was not afraid to be on TV shows. He actually started his career as a semi-professional baseball player. So he had a big, you know, sports theme kind of running all the way through his life in ways that we can talk about. But he was a guy who had a lot of different hats and his hands in a lot of different buckets and pots. So for someone who is universally good and didn't just specialize in one specific thing, I'm going to go with Robert Merrill. (laughs) Including over 500 performances is Tevye, I believe. Correct. 500 is Tevye to match his 500 total performances at the Met. Make that money. Now he is a rich man. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, Michael, he never sings those ad-libs the same way ever. In the 500 yeah. performances he did, those verbs and those those little, you know, ditties are always different. It's it's probably some of the stuff he ad-libbed when he was singing in Italian when he would butcher the words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was very used to that. Yep, yep. So, Matt, this is a gimme. Who was singing around the same time as Meryl and the same time as Capuccile that we would call the stylist? So if you're talking about stylist and baritone, like – it. Predictive text would f- literally finish this <laughs> sentence for you. That Siri knows that you're talking about Dietrich Fischer, Fischer Dieskau, German baritone, born in 1925, who throughout his career did sing opera as well as oratorio, but really is renowned for his leader interpretations. Uh, the the German songs of Schubert, Schumann, Mahler, Brahms. That was really his bread and butter, and really where he stood out from the pack in terms of his competition during his career, making hundreds and hundreds of recordings. He made eight recordings of Vinterreise alone <laughs> over the course of his career. So, just eight? <laughs> just, I know. <laughs> I, th- I think Bostridge is up to three right now. So, <laughs> The new Grand Slam. How many Vinterreises can you get in before you, <laughs> before you pack it in? Oh, God. Murder me. <laughs> so let's do something fun because this there's one role that all of these singers sang, and that is the pinnacle Verdi baritone role of Rigoletto. And, um, you know, there's some very athletic moments in this opera. Um, the last, the very last phrase Rigoletto sings comes to mind, but also Cortigiani and Si Vendetta. But let's just really listen to these singers and their tone quality. I think the best chance to hear just the voice and the phrase uh, is from the first duet between Rigoletto and Gilda. Uh, This is the cantabile for Rigoletto that begins De non parlare al misero.
Okay, Piero Capuccilli recorded uh, in 1966. That was the Giulini recording. Um, and these these three recordings we're going to hear were all captured at around the same time. Um, and they were all roughly the same age, these guys. So I, I think it's a good measuring stick. Um, for me... Was, Capuccilli was younger than Merrill, I think, a little bit. Because he was with Bruzon and all those people kind of more in the 70s, late 60s, 70s. Well, wait, go ahead. Just... I don't know. So for me, I mean... I, the, the Italian is so clear and um, the ability to um, add edge to the voice is really clear and the ability to go soft um, in, even in the middle of a note to go from edge to soft, uh, you know, it's just so beautiful. And you hear that he has intention. You hear that there's like deliberate choices being made and the technique is there to support it. Uh, my only, I guess, criticism is that the O on top is a little bit too covered for my taste, and the bottom doesn't feel very full. The bottom just feels a little bit light. You know, I think the I mean most Italian baritones they bottom out at like A. So it's not on if you listen to like old recordings, especially too. But a lot of the like people like Bruzon and Cappuccilli who were you know singing at the same time, <clears throat> like even in the airy too that quanto amelia, none of them can really do it because <clears throat> they're. It's just kind of the standard for an Italian baritone. But I think one other thing that I like about this is that, and whenever you hear Cappuccilli, it's everything is completely sung through. He never stops the tone, and there's never anything, he never stops anything harshly. It, there's, there's, you know, sound even going through the consonants sometimes, which is hard to imagine depending on the consonant. But it's just so steady, and it just flows. And it's, when you hear him sing like that, it's not a doubt that he was singing well into, you know, later in life and he preserved his voice. That right. Way. And then that's a sound that really carries in the theater. When you sing that kind of legato and you sing through your constants like that, that is where the audience, you know, in the back of the house is getting the words, not just on recordings, you know. And if you watch him too, it, it's you're never afraid that something's going to go wrong. Very Even on a dramatic moment, he's very secure and he approaches it very... Um, Healthy. Healthily, yes. Correct. Yeah. Which sometimes makes it feel like maybe it's not going to be exciting, I have to yes, say. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, so let's now switch over to our uh, all-surface uh, baritone. This is from the studio recording in 1963 conducted by Sir George Schulte, which has, by the way, an amazing uh, anamorpho singing Gilda, mm. uh, the, the sexiest Gilda there ever was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just Se sex bomb. Just seducing everybody, including her father. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter.
Aggraziato. <laughs> Ashley, do you want to say something before we talk about well, it? Well, I mean, I know on the last one you were worried a little bit about coverage and a little bit about understanding the Italian. I hope you're not going to hold those same standards over here because uh, you're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. He's, you know, here's here's what I love about Robert Merrill is that he's got this, and I, you know, I understand that this is an audio format and we should be analyzing the audio, but I'm going to go ahead and go with this here. There's something about the core of his voice that it's it's got that je ne sais quoi that I don't know what there's a warmness there's a richness to it and he's also somebody that sang very healthily for a long time this feels a little bit more reckless and playful than than Capuccilli for me but uh but there's you know there's something that these guys that have a certain swagger and a certain charisma have the 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 Kenny Rogers the Bill Clinton of it all Yes, there's another one. But yeah, the the Kenny Rogers and the Bill Clinton of it all, it's like you can't put your finger on it, but you're like, I like that guy. I like that guy. Well, and that's how I feel about Robert Merrill's voice. I think he, he the thing with him is he sounds like a quintessential American male middle voice. Mm-hmm. I agree with it, that. It, it, it flows up. He can sing open all the way up to, like, to an E. Because then like when he gets up to like Fs and F sharps, it, it sounds like a very different voice, which is not necessarily the case, I think, with Cappuccilli. It still yeah. sounds like his voice. The thing I always thought was very interesting about this recording is that he, the rhythm is wrong when he sings this. He's like an eighth note ahead, which I wonder why. I mean, if Schulte's conducting, obviously Schulte knows that he's coming in early. Uh, he's like, he comes in early every time. And it, it, it actually, it works because it gives it that with that going on underneath. It kind of propels it forward. So it, it must have been something they decided to do. I can't imagine it was just a mistake that got through. Well, I mean, I I don't think of Robert Merrill when I think of like, oh, I want to hear like a really great interpretation. I think of it as like, I want to hear his beautiful tone, you know. Um, but I think that he sung this role enough where he actually has some ideas. Yeah. And you think of Schulte as a great coach, one of the last great opera coaches. So, you know, maybe his this recording or maybe the way he interpreted the role uh, throughout his life was informed by what Schulte said about it. Yeah, well, and he was very hesitant to do this role. Bing kept asking him to do it, and he post he put it off for years and years. He was worried. Yeah. Um, and uh, what was I was going to say something else? I'm sorry. It'll come to me later. Oh, um, um I don't remember. Sorry. What I love <laughs> about the, how it starts though is just that that open ah, that spread ah, yeah. you know, very unitalianate, uh, but very effective. But he he was actually. This is what I was going to say. You know, I think when we talk about him being like a jock, I know, Oliver, you've always said that about him. I think sometimes what it really is, I think, is just the effortlessly, uh, the effortless way he's able to produce his tone. I mean, when he was singing at the Met, all the other Italian baritones who were doing other productions would stand backstage and watch him sing because they couldn't figure out how he did it. It was just, he was just completely, I mean, he worked, he he actually did work very hard and he's actually very good in Italian repertoire. Every now and then he'll forget words, but stylistically he's very, very good. I think, um, and it, it's just it, it's just the way he was p- able to produce his sound was completely effortless. What is that famous story about uh, in this duet, uh, "Que te importa?" When he says, "You know, what should it matter to Gilda?" But he hears the word "porta" in his head, and he makes a connection that he's talking about the door, so he points. Yeah, he points <laughs> the door. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, too, like when he was young, he went to uh, he studied with Samuel Margolis. Who actually taught him for free and said you can pay me later um and they went to a production of trovatore with richard benelli 
Yep. And if you know Richard Benelli, Richard Benelli had, had this huge honking voice, and every, he was doing Deluna, and he was yelling at his mother, I want to sing as loud as Benelli, when he probably did it. He achieved it. Benelli was loud, but Meryl was probably louder. So We love size in America. Oh, we yep. do. Well, and, and just to bring it back to our, you know, our recurring theme of sports is that one of the ways that he started paying for his voice lessons was with his paycheck from being a semi-pro baseball player. So, hmm. so super jock. I've heard that too, but I've, I've read his biography and it's there's no mention of that in there. I'm wondering if he made that up somewhere. Yeah, that's, well, then if he made it up, it should have been in his autobiography. No, I, I know. It, it's just strange. Like, <laughs> the one place it should be, it, it's not in there. So That is. That I, I is he didn't want to get fact-checked. So Probably. here is the oddball recording that I actually enjoy very it's much. It's beautiful. This, this is a beautiful, beautiful It's got a bad cut, but it's a beautiful recording. Dietrich Fischer Disco on the Raphael Kubelik recording from 1964 on Deutsch Grammophon with a beautiful, like, radiant Renata Scotto, a young Oh, Renata she Scotto sounds so good in this role, mm. on this recording. Mm-hmm. Just so clarion and no, like, wiriness at all. Uh, notice, I'm going to play right before a weird edit happens, but notice that there is actually maybe a, a retake that gets... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here we go. I mean, the Italian is actually very good, but it's like a baritone Martin. It's like Pelias is singing, it, you know. It, and it's so interesting to compare that singing with how he sings all that leader. Uh, you can hear him really actively trying to keep the vowels open and bright. And there's a couple places where he like kind of corrects himself, like in the in that big ah in the middle of it. Like he starts it as a leader singer, and then you can hear as he turns the volume up and like. It's not just the volume of his, in terms of sound, but like in terms of his airflow and the vowel opens up and it, you get a little bit of that Mediterranean sunlight, but there's still so much control going on because everything he sang, he, he wanted to make sure that the line was crafted according to, uh, that, that kind, those exacting standards it can get fussy, but in this moment, it's so beautiful. And it's like, it's like, you've never heard this duet before it's like so original 
the way he phrases it, you know? You know, I think, too, if you watch, if you listen or watch him in live recordings or videos, um, it's his voice is a lot fuller. He's not as meticulous as he's on recording, I don't think. Mm-hmm. The, like, there's Fritz, the Fritz Busch Society has a bunch of operas, even if, like, there's a recording of Balo that's really, really good. And you, you wouldn't think it's Fischer Diskow, you know, if you're lis- used to listening to his recordings of Schubert Leader or Schumann. Um, so I think, I think it's more about him being in the recording studio. So he's able to kind of really play and finesse it in a way that he might not be able to in an opera house. Uh, but I, I, I do love, other than that weird edit, I do love this. This is one of my favorite versions of this duet. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a bit of a rarity in terms of mid-century singers for like actually having success in both German and Italian operas. There were certainly some who, I, I mean, there are, he's not the only one on that list, and there were certainly others who tried. But in order, in terms of like actually being respected as an Ital- uh, as a singer in both German and Italian opera, like it, it's not a very long list. So we're going to drop in some more clips for you as we go through this, but let's just recap and maybe uh, we'll get some suggestions from Michael. Uh, I'll begin. Um, so we know the Capuccilli specialized in Italian repertoire. Um, he sang more Verdi roles than anybody else on this uh, in this matchup. And um, yeah, he also ventured out into some Bellini and Donizetti, which we don't really think of when we think of Disco or... Uh, Merrill, you know, he was the true bel canto singer out of this group, even though they all have their own way of doing bel canto. Capuccilli, to me, is the bel canto singer. And uh, yeah, we don't have an, I don't think we have enough. He's recorded all over the place, but I don't think we have enough of him. There should be more. And it's a shame that we don't. Um, I think that uh, Disco probably is going to win when it comes to just sheer <laughs> prolificness. So uh, right now I'm going to drop in. Um, the Cruda Funestas Mania Enrico's aria from Lucia. And this is probably a later recording. I don't know exactly what year it's recorded, but you can hear the tone is already more burn- bur- burnished and dark, uh, but has more power. And he snarls a little bit in this, which is uh, very exciting to hear. especially after uh, Leonard Warren passed away, he really kind of stepped into that. Um, I also want to give him points for being the only one on this panel who was on the Sonny and Cher show. Uh, so this is a guy who did <laughs> opera. He did musical theater. He did radio and film and television, even performed in Las Vegas, was the guy who sang the national anthem at Yankee Stadium for a long time. So to sort of show off the more commercial side of him, I wanted to point out a time when he uh, was on the Ed Sullivan show in 1967. So think about what we heard from him earlier in this episode and then cut fast forward to about four years later in 1967 when he's on the Ed Sullivan show, Sullivan show excuse me, doing the Toreador from Carmen. Hello. Oh. 
This fantastic uh, Ripper and Toreador that we just saw on Ed Sullivan. What else would you recommend for our buddy Robert Merrill? The best recording he ever did. And anybody who said that he was a, a ham of an actor in terms of like voc- his vocalisms or he would mesh things up in terms of the words, get his recording of Il Tabaro. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's with Renata Tabaldi, uh, uh, Mario Del Monaco, and then he is the, the bear. That Toonsmith? Yeah. <laughs> the du- the his the big aria is Nulla Silencio, but the duet Arresto Avicinam, it's unbelievable the sounds that are coming out of this guy's voice and the way he sings and the phrasing and the subtleties in terms of the Italian itself. It the, when I heard it, I was like, I can't believe this is the same guy that I've, you know, been listening to for years. It's absolutely exquisitely beautiful and I it, it's his best recording by far. talk about Dietrich Fischer Dieskau and just talk about his career as an opera singer. So you definitely we definitely need to drop in a clip here to compare what it was like when he really put his voice to work singing leader. And so I've picked uh, a section from the Brahms song Die Meinacht that really shows a lot of the range in terms of dynamics in terms of uh speed of text in terms of sensitivity to that German poetry and also in the way that he has these really micro rubato sections in the kind of in conversation with his pianist that kind of freedom that that wasn't available as an opera singer so this is uh Brahms die Meinacht with Wolfgang Savalisch on the piano
Uh, one of my favorite recordings is the um, the the Mahler recording with uh, Fischer Disco and Bernstein of the uh, uh, Ich bin der Welt gekommen. It's gorgeous. Oh, it's fantastic. long. Oh, it's yeah, like yeah. twice as long as every other recording of it. <laughs> but it's just absolutely exquisite for my money. Well, your money's good here, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, on, Oliver. Op, op, on Opera Box score. Old pal of uh, mine. Yeah. Your uh, opera, opera now, dollary dues. Uh, <laughs> we're here. We're America's talk radio show yippee, about yippee. opera. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Merrill, Fisher, Discao, Capuccilli. That is a crazy roster. And I just, I love the parallel between these two trios. Thank you, Oliver Camacho and the team for putting that together. Thank you, Michael Rice, for hanging out with us on the show. Pleasure to be back, George. Pleasure Last to be back. Last chance. What's on your mind? What is in your world right now in opera? So check out uh, my podcast that I do with Oliver and uh, Doug Dotson formerly of Boston, now of Atlanta, OperaNowPodcast.com. You can find it there or whatever, uh, OperaNow and whatever your podcatcher might be. What happened to uh, the app, Michael? Uh, it, it, the, uh, the developer and I got into a huge argument, and I cut him, and he f- quit. So Okay. Uh, and then check out, my wife is the uh, general director of Long Beach Opera, my wife Jenny, so check out their stuff. They just came back and did a uh, production, and uh, you know they'll be having their season coming i think august is their next show uh it's a double bill pierrot lunaire <clears throat> i think and i forget what the other one is but it's at the ford theater in los angeles so uh, check out long beach opera so she's been doing great work there she's really been uh done a fantastic job of handling everything that's happened over the last 18 months great michael rice thank you so much all right thank you everybody great Peace. to be here bye-bye Again, if you haven't already, want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Radio or just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, 30 seconds of sports talk before we get you your two-minute drill. Let me make this really clear, is that the racism in England post-Euro 2020 loss is absolutely unacceptable. Those are not true England fans. They might be English, I will give you that, but they are not true England fans. That's not what that team stands for, and that's not what that team accomplished in this tournament. Ashley. Well, we are filming and recording on July the 12th, so happy anniversary to Disco Demolition Day at Comiskey Park, where the Chicago White Sox play. Are you guys familiar with Disco Demolition Night? I am, thanks to You're Wrong About. (laughs) Yes! I love that podcast. They're so good. So 42 years ago today, a rebellion happened against the form of disco music. It officially died at Comiskey Park, which is now 
guaranteed rate field, which for a while was U.S. Cellular Field. Point is, it's Chicago's White Sox Stadium on the south side. Folks could get in for 98 cents and have a disco record there to destroy. They came in. Most people weren't really there to watch the baseball game. They came to blow up and get rid of these disco records so that it would officially die. <laughs> it turned into a riot. Uh, they actually, the White Sox had to forfeit their second game against the Tigers because the field was so destroyed after the demolition of disco. So what was to be a doubleheader was just a one header and then a bunch of stuff blowing up. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Nicholas Bachler, the intendant of the Bavarian State Opera, has announced his departure from the house later this summer. Quote, you shouldn't stay too long. I got a lot of offers for other opera houses, but it was clear for me not to go into another big institution. In the fall, the company will be managed by Serge Dony, most recently chief of the Lyon Opera, and that will be under the baton of Vladimir Yurovsky, who replaces Kirill Petrenko. Almost one year ago, the Black Opera Alliance released its Pledge for Racial Equity and Systemic Change in Opera. Today, the vast majority of American opera companies have responded to the call and have either signed or are in the process of signing the pledge. Black Opera Alliance says, however, after repeated emails and messages to Tulsa Opera with a surplus surrounding the controversy of their handling of the firing of Daniel Bernard Romain and the reckless words slash behavior of Tobias Picker, we hereby announce a red card for Tulsa Opera. The Royal Caribbean Cruise Line will pay Samuel Schultz $300,000 to settle the baritone's discrimination suit. In 2018, Schultz sued Royal Caribbean because the company fired him, claiming that Schultz was a risk for mental depression working on the confines of a cruise ship. Schultz recently resigned from the AGMA board after criticizing the union during the Placido Domingo investigation and, separately, has accused David Daniels and his husband of sexual assault. The Teatro Reggio di Parma moved the start time of its July 11th performance of Don Pasquale to earlier in the day so its audiences could watch the final of the Euro Championship live. Seemed to work out well for them. Sorry, George. Yeah, fair, Ashley, but OBS did predict the two finalists and the winner of Euro 2020 correctly last episode. All advanced tickets for this summer's Bayreuth Festival sold out online in two and a half hours. That's over 22,000 tickets for just 25 performances. The festival is still hoping that the Bavarian government will allow it to release more seats. On-site opera is pairing with the South Street Seaport Museum to present What Lies Beneath. The immersive musical experience about the enslavement of African people will take place on the tall ship The Waver Tree. Said artistic director Eric Einhorn, as New York City welcomes back live audiences, we are looking forward to amplifying African-American voices and stories through the exploration of our country's tragic past. In trade news, the Staatstheater Karlsruhe has dismissed its intendant, Peter Spuler, over what was described as a, quote, toxic working atmosphere involving control, mistrust, and choleric outbursts. More than a third of the House's staff had taken part in a demonstration demanding Spuler's dismissal. Czech conductor Jakub Rusha has been named music director of Rome's Orchestra of the National Academy of Santa Cecilia, replacing Antonio Papano, who has taken the top job with the London Symphony Orchestra. Rusha remains chief conductor of the Bamberg Symphony, principal guest conductor of the Czech Philharmonic, and guest conductor of the London Philharmonic, not to be confused with the London Symphony Orchestra, where Papano is. It's like conductor whack-a-mole. 
And she is back with a vengeance. It's a red card. Opera Australia has postponed its upcoming new staging of The Tales of Hoffman due to the government's extension of stay-at-home orders that made it impossible for the production to open on its scheduled August 2nd premiere. The decision came after dozens of musicians and performers were required to self-isolate after coming in contact with a construction worker who had tested positive for COVID-19. You can lead a virus to a vaccine, but you can't make it this joke doesn't work. I'm sorry, Oliver. I tried. Exit stage right Donald Pippin, a beloved impresario and the founder of the Bay Area Pocket Opera, has died at age 95. Pippin founded the company in 1977 and served as artistic director until 2018, presenting both well-known and rare operas in New English translations that he usually wrote himself. And on this day, July 12th, in 1666, it was the first performance of Antonio Cesti's Nettuno e Flora Festeggianti. Also, another premiere by Antonio Cesti in 1668, the first part of the three-day opera Il Pomo d'Oro. In 1672, it was the first performance of Antonio Draghi's Gundeberga, everybody's favorite opera. In 1854, the birth of Rochester, New York philanthropist Rochester, New York, philanthropist and School of Music founder George Eastman. In 1895, it was the birth of soprano Kirsten Flagstad in Norway. In 1895, it was the birth of American musical theater lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II. In 1925, it was the birth of Australian tenor Albert Lance. In 1929, Felipe Boero's El Matrero premiered in Buenos Aires. In 1946, one for Matt, Benjamin Britten's opera, The Rape of Lucretia, premiered at Glyndebourne. Happy birthday to soprano Sylvia Shash, Hungarian soprano Sylvia Shash. In 1972, it was the first performance of an opera we assume Weston knows and loves by Peter Maxwell Davies called The Taverner, or just Taverner. And an opera I'm sure Weston William knows and loves. 1976 was the first performance of Hans Werner Henze's We Come to the River. And that's your two-minute drill. That was Hungarian soprano Silvia Shash as Lady Macbeth uh, in a performance from the Teatro Regio di Torino with Fernando Privitali conducting. She was kind of like a blazing comet in the sky. For one brief shining moment, there was Silvia Shash. And hair for days. I call her the Crystal Gale of Opera. Just long hair for days. But yeah, in that short time, like everybody wanted a piece of her. And like she recorded so much and she was singing everywhere. Sort of like the... I don't want to say Sonia Yenchepa, but I feel like it was like sort of like that. I mean, Sonia yeah. Yenchepa is still around. Yeah, there was, was Elena Suliotis and then Sylvia Shash and <laughs> yeah. who will be next? <laughs> yeah. But also, who is another soprano that's like that? Like um, like Lucia Aliberti, kind of those like like the callous reduxes yeah. very much so. No, but like, like right now we have, um, what was her name? Maria Popovskaya, whatever oh, she was. Oh, Marina like, Popovskaya, yeah. yeah. And there was another um, Russian that we were crazy about for a minute. 
Um, there was Maya Kovalevska for a little bit. No, I'm talking and... about like just in the past like ten years. Like, oh, for, Ludmila yeah. Monastirska. Yes, and also okay. um, Nina Machaja, the Georgian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The and the and uh, Angelina Jolie one. Yeah. Anyway, so these sopranos are like, oh my god, they're so beautiful, they're so dynamic, they've got great voices, and like, let's do everything with them. And then, oh, <laughs> where'd you go? Where'd they go? Five years later, gone. Yeah. But Sylvia Shosh, if you want to watch some histrionics and some camp, just go to YouTube and watch that woman sing and the hair, like you said. The so, hair. Yeah. I feel Iconic. like everything in the drill this week is just shocking and surprising. Like I was gasping at every one of these stories, which is rare for that kind of like midsummer update. Nicholas Bachler has absolutely, since he took over the Bayerischer Staatsoper in 2008, I mean, has cemented it as one of the most important houses in Europe, due in no small part to hiring Kirill Petrenko. So much of, of the repertoire and the clout has come from the programming under Petrenko. And a number of like world-class singers who basically only <laughs> sing there. Absolutely. Jonas Kaufman <laughs> is just one of many. Anya Harteros, like, like there's a handful of them who, who really don't have to go very far because... Munich is so good. I mean, the dream as an artist that you, you have that artistic home. And like Bachler has been one of the the people who has really made it that for, for directors, um, uh, for singers. To, it's, it's unusual to say the least. So All I feel of- like we got to get somebody from Black Opera Alliance and somebody from Tulsa on the show. And just have them talk to each other like, oh yeah. i was like at the same time <laughs> yes <laughs> it's like jerry springer here we come like what? i mean like i feel like tulsa had really good intentions and then they they dropped the ball you know they they fumbled it right and um they should have asked you know another so they should have asked Janai, you know bridges to come on and sing in that um what was that event called the tulsa opera thing the it uh, was a greenwood yeah memorial yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we know that that thing was handled bad. It was bad PR for everybody, but somehow Tulsa is being very like stubborn about it. I feel like their feelings got hurt and like maybe Tobias Picker is suffering from a little, you know, uh, what do you call that? White, not white sensitivity, but, um, fragility, fragility, yeah, fragility. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, but I also feel like, I, I mean, I'm, I want to be friends with Black Opera Alliance, but I feel like, wow, they are, they're going after people now, you know, it's like you had a year. To like get your stuff together. Now we're gonna start, you know, playing I, these red cards. You know? I, I don't know if they're going after people so much as saying like, "Look, it's never too late to say I'm sorry." Like this work is hard. I I don't deny that. But honestly, like, just say that you messed up and then start to take some actionable steps to right these wrongs. Show uh, us I, that you're what listening. What am I missing yeah. here? But it, I mean, what what the Black Opera Alliance? is their objective is and especially when you think about the green word remembers performance like that was a show that really put a lot of attention on these issues you know and they made a mistake with it but that was them trying to do a good thing trying to do something that was you know thinking about the black community and uh, now they're being called out because it didn't go exactly the way the Black Upper Alliance wanted it to go, you know? I do like the red card bit. I, I will say I uh, definitely approve of that. <laughs> didn't go unnoticed <laughs> by so, us here at so, so then I'm also shocked. Samuel Schultz. So he resigns from AGMA he, uh, because of the way the union held, uh, took care of the Domingo investigation. He accused David Daniels and his husband of sexual assault. 
and he's in a discrimination suit against the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line. Yeah, this I found this interesting on on a lot of levels. Uh, the first is, you know, with with cruise lines in particular, uh, they they often don't necessarily fully adhere to American law. They often fall under sort of maritime restrictions. So the fact that he was able to bring this lawsuit forward on U.S. ADA compliance issues, if this were something that was based fully in Florida, I would see that he's totally got a case here. Depending on where Royal Caribbean has their you know headquarters based, I was just a little bit surprised to see it come through. I know 2018 to now doesn't seem like a short amount of time, but for cases like this, it's actually a little bit short. And I I couldn't help but think about the sports parallel here, you know, because what this really is from Sam Schultz is an advocacy for his own mental and behavioral health. That's what this was. And I couldn't help but notice the parallels because we're seeing this more and more and we're seeing people stand up for themselves now in the sports world. You look at somebody like Naomi Osaka, who pulled herself out of the interviews because she knew she needed to take care of her behavioral health. Um, So it seems as if the sports world is doing this in a in a, in a little more of a public way and having the conversation a little bit more than we are doing it, say, on the performing on the classical music side. Um, so I'm just interested to see kind of how, you know, the notion of this lawsuit reverberates into other areas of our performing spaces. And are other people going to feel like they can advocate for themselves or are companies mm-hmm. going to step up and try to take better care of folks for fear of litigation like this? And just on a, since we're talking about tennis, uh, Adjacent to this, um, a British teenager made it into, I believe, the fourth round or even to the round of 16 of Wimbledon. And she basically had a panic attack in the middle of her match and she retired in the middle of the match and she gave her opponent a walkover. And she said later on, it's like, I just I was not able to handle the pressure and I needed to take care of myself, you know. And think about how that would have been received and how it would have been reported on the in the news 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The headlines Five look- years ago, honestly. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. it happened on Sunday when 19-year-old Saka misses the fifth and final penalty against Italy. And now he's the subject of like racist abuse. This isn't, yeah, this is yesterday. So uh, to, these opera companies, they should not be making these actions because they're we're not getting sued. They should be doing this because it's the morally right thing to do, to take care of the people that are under your charge and they're making art. Then I get shocked that Parma changes its curtain times. These curtain times are sacrosanct in Italy. It changes its curtain times so that... If there's one thing that's more sacrosanct, though, it's the national football team, right? That's fair. Then I get shocked that Bayreuth sells out in two and a half hours. I guess you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And but are every- they at full capacity? Well, they're not. No, right? So the, the, the Bavarian government hopes hopes that they can increase the, the numbers. Um, and then... It probably would have sold out even if it had been at full capacity. Absolutely. Though. There was one year, this was years ago, when I tried to get tickets for Bayreuth through this sort of like, you have to be in the online queue. And I actually managed to get two tickets and then decided not to go. And I released them into the ether of the internet. And then I'm shocked by Peter Spuler uh, being kicked out in Karlsruhe. Now, now let me just say this. I, I've met Peter Spuler and I've talked to many people that worked in that house and no one, <laughs> no one has said a bad word about him. I'm not defending him. I'm not saying that this isn't the truth. All I'm saying is from my experience, I find these accusations shocking and surprising just as a theme for the drill this week 
But the outbursts were choleric, George. They said choleric. <laughs> they said it right in the statement. Yeah. Is that contagious, cholera? Not if it's just an outburst. Okay. That's really oh. good. And if you've had your shots, you know, just one more reason to get vaccines, guys. Are we are we bringing back red card? Are we going to have to bring it back? God, let's hope not. But speaking of vaccines, and so Australia is only is at about twenty five percent vaccination rate of the population right now. So we are, you know, it's still early innings. There's there's many many more to go between this virus and vaccination efforts and. Uh, please, God, let us hold on. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just going to follow the trend that it has this whole time, which is countries are going to be handling it differently because their infection rates are going to be different. Their vaccination rates are going to be different. You know, look at the states. Right now, we're seeing the symphony come back. We're seeing, you know, here in our backyard, Grand Park Orchestra and Chorus was on stage this weekend. However, you know, reduced capacities. So we're doing it, but we're holding steady in terms of vaccination and infection rates. If that's not the case, you can't do shows. And my last surprise for the drill this week, I could have sworn that Rape of Lucretia was premiered at the Aldborough Festival, but no. Britain went bigger. He went When Glyndebourne comes a knocking. But that's you also one of his smallest operas, too, isn't it? Uh, it is the first, it's the, it's a chamber opera. Yeah, and it's, it's the chamber. first one that he actually called a chamber opera. And there they were at the country house in Glyndebourne. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. So much tennis and so much baritone in one hour-long episode. It's great. It's Good call. It, thank you. Good call, bad call. We're going to start with Oliver Camacho. Bad call to John McEnroe, who always puts his foot in his mouth. It doesn't even realize he's doing it, but uh, at the Wimbledon final in the preamble to the match, he said something along the lines of like the last time it's been like 45 years since an Italian won a major, uh, forgetting that Francesca Schiavone won the French open in 2010. So it hasn't been 45 years. It's only been 11 years, but he doesn't think of women as equals, I guess. Good call to, um, Des Moines Metro opera friend of the show. Gary Wido, uh, just gave the prima of Plate. And if you sniff around social media and look for production stills of uh, that show, it looks amazing. The cast is incredible. And I'm just so happy for French Baroque Opera to be brought to Iowa. Matt Cummings. I was poking around to see if Anita Rachvilishvili's uh, Russian song album had been released yet, and it is. But that's not the end of my story, because I also found... Um, a new recording that just came out of a highlights from Porgy and Bess uh, with Marin also up in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And the cast is phenomenal. It's got Angel Blue, Lester Lynch, Chauncey oh. Packer, Kevin Short. <laughs> Those are just the top build names, too. Like, I'm going to be listening to this all week. I want that. Uh, Ashley Hardgrave. Good call this week to the Goodman Theater here in Chicago for their next step towards live theater, where they're broadcasting live theater on the internet. Uh, so they're starting uh, Ike Holder's play, I Hate It Here, directed by Lillian Brown. It runs this weekend, Thursday through, I believe, Sunday. Uh, so if you're itching for some live performance, but you're not quite ready to get out and about, or you're not in Chicago, you can get a ticket to the Goodman, uh, I Hate It Here, by Ike Holder. Bad call, of course, that uh, we, England, lost that final. Good calls. I got huge hopes 
for the World Cup in 2022 with that side. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes on the stories we're talking about, operaboxscore@gmail.com. And again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is subject to VAR review. Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. Through your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. And our guest, Michael Rice. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you dry your tears or loss or joy or boredom. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with the folks at American Baroque Opera. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more dink shots. Join us.